The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. For there is no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if the money has gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day brought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now there is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be yours, shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And they said, We have served, we have, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth, and the land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147. And when the time drew near for Israel must die... He called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing this morning? Good. Good, great, grand, wonderful. We're a little quiet this morning, I can tell. A little sleepy, I don't know what's going on. Um, If this is your first time, I'd like to welcome you to Sacred City Church. Uh, My name is Justin, I'm the pastor here. Uh, We started Sacred City um, just over two years ago. Uh, My wife and I moved back to the Quad Cities in June of 2011. 
And we prayed that God would start a, a church, a gospel-centered missional church. And here we are, roughly two years later, and we're, we're thankful for where God's brought us. We're thankful that you're here worshiping with us this morning. Um, this isn't all we do. Actually, this is a small piece of what we do. Um, we have missional communities spread all, through, all throughout the city. Um, they are like little churches that meet in people's homes where they break bread together, they share community, they live life on life together, and they're on mission serving a, a specific people and place in our city. Um, they help us live out our identities because many of us, um, you think, you even showed your bad theology this morning as you look to your significant other or you look to your kids and you said, hurry up, let's go, we got to go to church. And um, church is not a place... Church is a people, but because of some really bad theology that you grew up with and that our culture kind of propagates, um, you, you believe that this is the, the church is the building. The church is the place that you go to, uh, when in reality, the church is a body of believers, um, and we seek to be the body of Christ in small missional communities. And if you are here and you're worshiping with us and you've been here a few weeks or months, or maybe this is your first time, um, we would like to invite you. Uh, much of what we do here today is very similar, uh, but we would like to invite you into one of our missional communities. And you can find out more in the back um, at the box office. Find out what Christianity really looks like when you get down to the nuts and bolts, to the brass tacks of, of real life. Um, because it's easy to be a nobody in here. It's easy to just sit back and just kind of be an observer. Um, and that's not what you're meant for. That's not what the body of Christ is meant to look like. You're meant to be intimately involved with other believers and um, see how the gospel impacts your life in the day-to-day. And we, we try to work that out in missional community. So we invite you there. Uh, and I want to briefly say that to this afternoon, 3 o'clock, um, at our off, Sacred City offices, 1411 Brady, we have our third and final membership class. So we've had a, a great two weeks, uh, the past two weeks there. So we, I, I invite you out. Come find out more. Uh, find out how to be a member of Sacred City Church uh, tonight, 3 o'clock. And uh, that's that. So let me pray. Uh, Gracious God, thank you for drawing us into this room today. Thank you for bringing us together, uh, that you've scattered us all throughout the week, uh, that we're all across our cities um, as missionaries for you. But today we get to be brought in and you get to call us in under the banner of the gospel, under your good news, under your word. Uh, We get to sit inside the liturgy. We get to sing together with other saints to let our voices be heard with all of heaven and as we get to glorify your name. Thank you for doing that. I pray that this time would be fruitful, uh, that as we continue to study Genesis and the life of Joseph and Jacob and Israel, um, that we would, we would all be mutually benefited, that we would see you in a new way, that we would uh, come to understand your word like we haven't before, that your Holy Spirit would um, think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords, that you would hear through our ears and Help us believe with our heart. Um, God, there's people that sit in darkness in this room. There's people who are ignorant in this room. There are people who think uh, they know you, but they really don't. And their hearts are far from you. And we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel, that you would bring change today. That you would bring the dead to life. That you would bring the cold. um, That you would bring heat and warmth that... Those who are dead and like dry bones, you would put flesh on them and you would make them live. Um, Who can make the dead dry bones live? You, our sovereign Lord, the maker of heaven and earth can. 
Father, we submit to you. We submit to your word. And we ask that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, we said, amen. Well, welcome to Sacred City. We are glad that you joined us um, as a church. We have been studying this book of Genesis for almost a year now. The very first book of the Bible. This is the uh, 48th week by my count. And shockingly, we only have three more to go. I'm blown away. This thing has crept up on us. Um, After this book, we're going to do something that we have, I don't know if we've ever done, and we definitely don't do very often, but that's a a couple really short topical series. Um, We've had a lot of people join our church recently uh, that that come from different religious backgrounds. Maybe they grew up in church, and then when they went to college, they kind of stepped away from it. Um, Or maybe they just migrated to Sacred City from other churches from across the Quad Cities. But we have noticed that many people, as they join Sacred City, um, they kind of get whiplash by doing that. That it's really similar, um, you know, going from just a church where, you know, you go to church, a a church that maybe you just attend on Sunday or you attend a class and um, you just kind of go and you attend... When you go from that to a gospel-centered missional church where we believe that you are the church and you be the church and that's who you are and you're meant to make disciples who make disciples. That's what all of us are called to do. And we're all called to be a part of a gospel community and a missional community that's on mission. We're all called to do that. When you go from just attending church to being the church, it's a lot like jumping on a motorcycle that's going 50 miles an hour, right? Boom, it's whipping by and you go, oh, that looks attractive. And you try to jump on, right? There's a lot of whiplash that's involved. It's a lot of change um, that's needed. See, when you you go from a kind of a traditional church to a gospel-centered missional church, there's a lot of, there are many, many things that require you to grow, uh, change, and adapt. Your schedule has to change. See, uh, many of us have had this um, secular view of our lives um, that kind of, we have a church life and we have a real life. We have our schedule and then the preacher's trying to get some of my time, right? Or he's trying to take my time or the church is trying to take my time. But when you become a part of a gospel-centered missional church, you come to realize that it's all God's, right? It's all, there's a guy in the New Testament where Jesus says, you know, his harvest is big. So he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to build bigger barns. I had a whopping harvest this year. So I'm going to build, build bigger barns. And he's not honoring God with his wealth. He's not honoring God with his time. He's not saying things like, if the Lord wills, increase will come. Um, and like today, we see a season of famine that, that hits, the, hits the land. He's not preparing for that. He's not putting God first. So what does, God, what does Jesus do? Jesus says, you fool, today I'm going to demand your soul from you. Demand your, today you're going to die. You've built these bigger barns. You're prepared for all this harvest. And I'm going to take your life today. And what is a life? Like, what does it benefit a life to gain the world and lose your soul? So when you join a gospel-centered missional church, you come to realize that your schedule is not your own. And your schedule has to change. Um, With that, your heart has to change, right? Because I think my life is mine. And my time is mine. And my money is mine. And Jesus would say, you fool. That's not yours. It's his, he owns it all, and he can take it in a moment. So our heart has to change, our worldview has to change, our mind has to change. And all of that, in order for all of that to change, listen, we don't say at Sacred City, we're a gospel-centered missional church. We don't say, change, shame on you, give more of your money, give more of your time. If you're a better person, you would do that. (laughs) 
good people volunteer, good people are generous. That's not what we say, right? We say this, well, this is what it means to be gospel-centered. We need a bigger view of the work that Jesus has done for us. We need to go deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. And as you go deeper into the gospel, you realize what Jesus gave up for you. You realize the extent to which he went to rescue you and redeem you and, and, and save you. And as I see that, my hands, right? My hands get slowly peeled off of all the things that I call mine in this world. And I slowly offer up to Jesus my entire life, everything that I am. And so we're going to do, because of that, we're going to do a three to four week series that we're going to call ReChurch. Okay, that's what's coming next. This will be kind of like an on-ramp of sorts for those who have joined us in the past year. Maybe some of us who just need a reminder. Uh, We plan to answer some of your questions and kind of help you acclimate and get plugged in here at Sacred City. So that's our prayer. We're here to make disciples who make disciples. We want to disciple you. Uh, so that you can fulfill God's calling on your life to go and disciple others. That's why we're here. We're not here to entertain. We're not here just to fill you with knowledge. We want to see you embrace the great commission, the calling of your life to make disciples, right? That's why you're on this planet, to make disciples who make disciples, who renew the whole of creation for the glory of God. That's why we're here. And we want to see you do that. So that's where we're headed next. Uh, But today... We are in Genesis 47, so if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis 47. If you have your app, scroll to Genesis 47. We have a Sacred City Bible or Sacred City app on your smartphone or tablet. You can open that up, follow along with us. But let's get there. I want us to all study this together. Um, What we've been studying, and today what we're getting at, we get to see uh, the wisdom of God displayed through Joseph's ruling in Egypt. Last week we saw and studied how Israel ended up in Egypt, right? Many of us are familiar with the Exodus story, but how did they get there? Well, we saw that last week. Today we get to see how things went for them the first 17 years they were in Egypt. That's what we're going to study today. Basically, 17-year time period. So, to catch you up to speed really quick, Joseph was a son of one of Israel's patriarchs. Okay, the patriarchs were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was Joseph's daddy. Um, and Jacob loved Joseph a lot. Actually, um, he loved him so much that he put that love on display by favoring him over all of his brothers. They had, Jacob had 12 sons and one daughter. And Jacob showed special favor. Uh, parents, not a thing I would recommend. Um, Jacob, Jacob had his favorites. Okay? That did not go well for Joseph. Joseph's older brothers obviously were jealous and they faked his death to their father while selling him off into slavery. Okay, sold him off into slavery, told dad he died. Uh, Joseph was then separated from his father for over 22 years. He spent the better of that time in slavery or in prison and... uh, For things that he didn't do, right? He got wrongly imprisoned. Joseph had every right to get angry, to get bitter, to get frustrated at God. But instead, Joseph chose to believe by faith that God was working out something bigger than he understood. Very difficult. 
When things are not going well, when we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel, when God's not doing things we want him to do and our life's not going the direction we want it to go and difficult times hit, the, the, the diagnosis is not good, the children are not being obedient, the marriage is not going well, it's really, really easy to shake our fist at God and say, why? But Joseph chose the path of faith and he believed that God was using even his difficulties and even his struggles and his suffering to work out something greater. And that is exactly what happened. One day God gave Joseph this ability to interpret one of Pharaoh's dreams. And his dream was kind of unique. Pharaoh dreamed that there would be, uh, well, I'm just going to give you the interpretation. I won't give you actually the dream, but Joseph interpreted and said, this is what, this is what's going to happen, Pharaoh. There's going to be seven years of famine throughout the land followed or seven years of prosperity in the land followed by seven years of famine. And then, following up that dream, God gave Joseph Joseph this gift of wisdom. Proverbs 2, 6-7 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk upright, or walk in integrity. Then James 1, 5, 5 says this, or 1, 5 says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. The Lord gave J- Joseph wisdom to know what to do. The ESV Bible, uh, in their introduction to the book of Proverbs, fr- Proverbs, if you're young in this room, you should read Proverbs a lot. You should maybe read a proverb a day. It would be great for you because Proverbs was written to young people uh, over and over. He says, my son, listen, uh, my son, listen, my son, listen. It's all about wisdom. It's all about being wise. And in the ES- ESV's introduction to the book of Proverbs, it says this, wisdom is the skill in the art of godly living. Wisdom is the skill in the art of godly living. So Joseph doesn't just interpret a dream. This is what's going to happen, uh, Pharaoh. Seven years of good luck, seven years of bad luck. See ya. I'm out of here. Right? He doesn't just interpret a, d- a dream. He also gives wise counsel to Pharaoh. He said, uh, this is what we're going to do, Pharaoh. This is what I think would be the wise approach. In the seven years of good times, I want you to tax 20%, 20% tax, 20% flat tax, right? Everyone that they bring in, all their harvest, I want you to tax them uh, 20% during the good years and let's store up all that grain in decentralized storage facilities throughout the land of Egypt. And then when the famine hits, the whole region will come to us for food, Right? Pharaoh doesn't go, you religious bigot, that's ignorant. Right? Pharaoh goes, that's a wise plan. That's wisdom. Right? So many of us Christians, we need to understand and embrace wisdom. Right? Sometimes we're not being persecuted in our jobs. Sometimes we just suck at them. Right? Sometimes we're just wearing the Jesus t-shirt, but we don't have the wisdom and we don't have the integrity of God. And we're not, you know, seeking to diligently work with all our might. Like we're working for Jesus. We're not working for our bosses in those ways. Right? Wisdom is recognized by her fruit. Scripture says people look and they go, that's wise. Right? So Pharaoh looked at Joseph's plan and go, 
That's a great plan. <laughs> Bosses, I'm going to get rich on that plan. I like this plan. I see the prospering of the business, the prospering of the nation. I like this plan. So Pharaoh saw the wisdom of Joseph's plan, and so he agreed to it. And he ends up taking Joseph out of prison and putting him in uh, a prominent position. Basically, uh, it was the prime minister of Egypt, second in command, going from the pit to the palace in one day. And what we have seen over the past few weeks was that everything... Even though if you were in it, if you were a fly on the wall, if you're watching it, you would go, this is chaos. What is happening? Famine's hitting the world. and God's people are starving to death. And Joseph's in prison. And what, you know, it just looks like the world is out of control. From a 30,000 foot view, if we can, the way we see it now, we see everything was going according to God's plan. God was moving strategically the pieces in place. He was controlling the weather and controlling the famine. He was controlling all things to get his people right where he wanted them. And uh, what, what we saw last week was that even Israel, that was Joseph's family at the time. It's where we get the nation of Israel now, the, the Jewish people now. They had to leave the promised land to go and search for food. And this famine now has led them into Egypt, a pagan nation. Pharaoh was so blessed by Joseph's wisdom and integrity that he then last week, he blessed Israel's family and he gave them the best of the land of Egypt called the land of Goshen. And he put them in charge of all of Egypt's livestock. Okay. They were shepherds by trade and he brought them in and Joseph told them what to say. And, and, he, and he said, you know what, you guys. Joseph is so wise and Joseph has blessed this country through the seven years of, of blessing. And now the hard times have hit and, and Joseph's plan has worked out well. I want to bless his family. So you guys pick out the best land, take it. And I want you guys to be masters over my livestock. I want you to watch over my livestock. And what we saw last week was now God was beginning to incubate his people inside a for, the foreign nation of Egypt. And that is where we pick up the story today. So if you open up your Bibles, uh, Genesis 47 verse 13 is where we're going to jump off today. Now there was no food in all the land. For the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished By reason of the famine. Now we've seen that God has exalted Joseph into leadership. For such a time as this. Now listen. Romans 12, 6 through 8 says this. We all. Say all. Say that's me. Okay. He's speaking to the church here. He's speaking to the people of God. He's speaking to the people who have been given new birth by the spirit. That's who Paul is writing to here. Now listen to this. We have different gifts. All of us. We have different gifts. According to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. Now, I love this right there. Did you see what Paul... If it's prophesying, prophesy. Now, all of us are like, well, that ain't me. Prophesying? What do I think? You know, kind of speaking for God. Declaring the word of the Lord. Most of us in this room go, well, that ain't me. 
And Paul juxtaposes right next to it, prophesying, we all think that's a spiritual gift that's maybe for some super spiritual pastor. And then he, and then he quotes, we all have spiritual gifts, maybe one's prophesying, nope, that's not me, or serving. Cleaning toilets? It's a spiritual gift. Baking bread, cooking dinner, vacuuming foyers, welcoming people in. Is that a spiritual gift? Absolutely, that's a spiritual gift. Absolutely. Let's keep reading. What, what, what does he keep? He says in Romans 12, he says, if it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. Do you have a gift? Maybe you have the spiritual gift of encouraging. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. Paul tells us that leadership is a gift. Leadership is a spiritual gift. Leadership is a gift given by God through the Holy Spirit to specific people that he gives them special gifts of leadership to lead and govern diligently. He gives them wisdom to choose the right path. And what we see in Genesis 47 is that God has graciously given Joseph this gift of wisdom and this gift of leadership. And Joseph is now governing diligently. He's working hard. He's serving well. He's doing a good job. He's making his boss look good. Now listen, many of us have godless bosses, we, we would say. We have mean bosses. We have angry bosses. We have unjust bosses. I don't know if we have any bosses who claim they're God. Pharaoh claimed that he was God. Right? Waking up in the morning, it's raining. You could thank me for that. Right? He claimed he was, he was a pagan. He was in no way a Christian. He had no, in no way had Christian values. He no, in no way believed that there was one God who created all things for his glory and that human beings are made in the image of God. He thought he was God and everybody else wasn't and therefore he should be exalted on high and everyone else was meant just to serve him. Many of you maybe do have bosses like that, right? They're the CEO because of their high intelligence or their you know, education or because they're better than you or whatever. But what we see is Joseph serving a man like that with gladness. We see Joseph with some kind of worldview, some kind of way of seeing the world that enabled him to serve and to lead and to work hard as if his boss was the true God and not a false God. We need to see this. Whatever it was that Joseph had, we need. We need a better way of seeing our normal lives. We need a better way of seeing what does it mean to go to work. So many people say to me, well, you're a, you're a pastor. You work for God all day long. Must be easy. My job is no more sacred than yours, whatever it may be. Ten years ago, when I was building houses, that job was no more sacred than my job of preaching the gospel today. I worked no, I don't work any harder today than I did then. I don't work any, I work just as hard then as I do today. Joseph had some kind of secret, I think. Joseph saw things in a way that I think we need to be able to see them. And now... 
He's working hard. He's increasing the profitability of his employer. A pagan nation, he's working for his good. Would you think God wanted to bless the nation of Egypt? See, and now what we have is the people of Egypt are at the mercy of Joseph and and Pharaoh as the famine continues to go on and on. The people of Egypt go deeper and deep. What we're about to see is the people of Egypt go deeper and deeper and deeper into debt, eventually becoming serfs. Uh, They're laborers who have to work the land for Pharaoh. Um, let's, Let's look at this. Verse 14. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Okay, step one, famine hits, nobody else prepares for it. Nobody sees the downturn in the economy. Nobody sees the stock market's about to crash. Joseph has some serious insider information. He tells Pharaoh, and Pharaoh doesn't send out a mass letter to all of Egypt to go, hey guys, you really need to prepare for the downturn in the economy. Things are really going to get difficult. Nobody does that. They just sit on the information. Joseph's getting 20% of all the crop in. Famine hits. Everybody says, oh no. Oh no, crops aren't coming up like they used to. So the first step, what happens? They empty their bank accounts. They cash in the 401, 401k. Their retirement account goes to zero. They start selling stuff on eBay. Everything they can get their hands on, they sell for cash. They give it up to Joseph. They bring it to Joseph. They lay it at his feet. Joseph says, thank you. Takes it and gives them food. All right, that's step one. They've emptied out their bank account. Now listen, I've done that before. Amanda and I, when we moved to Omaha to be church planting residents up there before we planted Sacred City Church, uh, I was working at Whole Foods and a full-time uh, resident. And we were not making enough money for, uh, to, to, meet our, you know, to meet our bills. And so we, we emptied out all of our, all of our savings. We, just, we had to sell stuff. It was a very lean time. And there's this fear When you do that, there's a fear when you see that zero in the bank account or that zero in the savings account. It's like, okay, I'm good today, but what's coming tomorrow? I really hope the economy changes. I really hope things change and things turn up because I can't last for very long if this is the case. So this is where the people of Egypt are. Bank accounts at zero. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone. So they gave Joseph... So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. All right. So year number two, the famine is still hitting hard. The bank accounts at zero. They look around and they go, okay, well, we've got a car in the garage. I got some equity in the car. All right. I'll have to go sell the car. I'll have to sell the animals. I'll have to sell all. So now, now the possessions are leaving, right? The ways they were using, even some things that help them make money, help them uh, provide for their family. Now they're auctioning those off. 
to pay the debts. Still, I'm sure, hoping next year it'll get better. Next year it'll get better. Next year things will turn around. Next year I'll get the job. Next year rains will come. Next year the, down, the downturn will, will turn up. And what we see is Joseph says, okay. He brings it all in for Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh's getting richer and richer and richer. Let's see what happens now. Verse 16, or verse 17. I'm sorry. Verse 18. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, (laughs) we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of our livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? By us and our land for food, and we with our land will become servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, he did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvests you shall give a fifth, to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. And look what they said. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. Okay. So here we are. They emptied their accounts. They sold. They went Dave Ramsey, Right? Sell everything that's not bolted to the floor. Sell so much stuff that the kids think they're next. Right? They emptied their house. They sold everything they had. And then they went to Joseph and said, we're broke. The famine still hit. We don't have anything. All we have is ourself and our land. And so they sell themselves into slavery. Now listen. This word slaves for us in America conjures up memories of the African slave trade which really color our view of slavery. But according to uh, scholar Gordon Winham, in ancient society, uh, slavery was the accepted way of bailing out the destitute. Slavery was uh, actually under a benevolent master. It could actually be quite a comfortable status. It's more like an indentured servitude. It's like um, if you're in debt and you can't pay, that's how you work it off. Uh, most of us, honestly, a few of us in here might, but most of us have no idea what this kind of economic downturn really looks like. This is similar to the Great Depression, what happens in Egypt during this time. And if you remember, if you've ever read about the Great Depression, right, you see these pictures where it was uh, more beneficial to burn a wheelbarrow full of cash than it was to use it to buy bread. So that's kind of what's going on right here. Um, After hitting rock bottom, 
And Joseph and Pharaoh purchasing all of their land and all of the Egyptians. Joseph now gives them seed to sow their land. He sends them back out and he says, 20% of everything you bring in, you've got to give back to Pharaoh. And I want you to live on the rest. And the people, we, we see that this isn't uh, slavery in the way we think of it because the people go, thank you. He's like, I just bought you for slavery. I bought you for Pharaoh. Thank you, sir. May I have another? Right? Like, we see them thanking him, saying, you saved our lives. We would have died without this. Things were that bad. Now, I want us to see a principle here. This is a kind of, kind of a difficult text to preach. Um, but I want us to see a principle. Joseph was sent into a pagan nation. Sent. Joseph was a missionary to a pagan nation. In verse 25, we see that you have saved our lives. That's what they said. You have saved our lives. Joseph was sent there to save their lives. Actually, those were his actual words when he confronted his brothers in chapter 45, verse 5. Joseph said this, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God sent me into Egypt to preserve life. To save life. And what we see here is God is saving the lives of Egyptians as well as Israelites. Pagans as well as Jesus worshipers. And pagans, if you don't know, pagans just means they worship any, anybody, any other God other than Jesus. That's what a pagan is. Someone who worships any other God other than Jesus, including themselves. And that, when we see that, when we see what God was doing with Joseph, that should help us understand a little bit better just what our calling is here in this city. Your calling as an individual, as a member of the body of Christ, as a member of Sacred City, when we study the life of Joseph and how God sent him inside of a pagan nation, how he incubated his people inside of a pagan nation... To work for the good of that nation. We should see that and get a principle from that and learn what God is trying to do with our lives in this city that he sent us. See, at Sacred City, we say that our vision is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. Most people go, make disciples, get it. Plant churches, get it. Renew the city. What the heck does that mean? We spent a lot of time talking about the first two, honestly. We spent a lot of time talking about making disciples and planting churches. But what does it really mean to renew the city? Now, I think this will help us. I want you to you can keep your finger here or if you got one of those little nice little silky bookmarks, put your silky bookmark in your Genesis. And I want you to flick, flip to Jeremiah 29. Flip in your Bibles to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29. When you're there, say there. I'll wait. Okay, you there? Say there. All right, cool. Now let me give you the context of this uh, text before we jump into it. Jerusalem, right? God's people have been sent into exile. What is exile? 
Very similar to what happened here in Egypt. God's people have been brought into a pagan nation. They've lost their national identity. They've lost their... They don't have kings. They don't have rulers. They're not a nation anymore. They're now inside of a pagan nation. This time, the pagan nation is called Babylon. And the ruler is called Nebuchadnezzar. All right? And now, this is what happens. God raises up this prophet. His name is Jeremiah. And God speaks to this prophet, much like he spoke to Joseph. God speaks to this prophet. He says, tell my people, this is what I want you to tell my people. This is how they're meant to live while they're in a pagan nation. Okay? Do we get the context? Man, I hope, can we, are we in it today? I feel like we're not in it. I feel like we're not in it today. I'm going to preach to myself and the angels who are listening in the balcony, all right? I'm just going to preach the gospel to myself and make myself happy today. That's my goal, all right? So what is God going to say? He's allowed this pagan nation to come in, to take over his people, to drag them off into slavery, into bondage. What is God going to say to this people? Is God going to say, let my people go, Nebuchadnezzar? He's already been there, done that. Did that before. He's not going to do that. Is God going to tell his people, hold on, keep on keeping on? Right? I want you to I want you to create these little subversive enclaves of Christian communities. I want you to create Christian schools, and I want you to create these little places where you can hide yourself out from the culture. I want you to begin to pick it. I want you to begin to point your finger at Nebuchadnezzar and tell him how wrong he is and tell him how jacked up he is. And I want you to be really weird in this culture. Right? I want you to make really bad music and call it Christian. Right? I, I want you to make really... Like, I'm, I'm being kind of facetious, but... What's God going to do? What's he going to tell his people when they're in in a pagan nation? What's he going to tell them to do? Look at verse 4. 29 verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile. Who, Who sent them there? God. Sorry, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, you think you're powerful? You think by your might and your power you captured and you conquered this people and you drugged them off into Babylon? Uh-uh, I'm sorry. God is the player on this stage. Who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And this is what he tells him to do. Look at this. What are you supposed to do in Babylon? Build houses and live in them. Oh. <laughs> uh. Okay, I'm waiting for the spiritual stuff. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Um, Okay. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But look at verse 7 here. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For in its welfare, you will find 
your welfare. What does God say? You're in a pagan nation. Pray for the nation. Seek the welfare of the nation. Be a blessing to the nation. Live normal lives in the nation. God says to his people, put down roots. I know it's pagan. Live in the city. I know it's wicked. But I want you to build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons. I want you to multiply. I want you to increase while in the city. And I want you to seek the welfare of the city. Where I have sent you into exile. Pray over the city for, its, for in its welfare. Hear this. Christian people. Hear this sacred city. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is a powerful principle from God. Don't be afraid of the city. Bless the city. He does not say, this is what I want you to do, people. Go into the city. Go to Kinko's, buy a real big poster board, get some neon markers, right? Write some really rude things, some really obscure texts from scriptures about God hating people or something. And I want you to go picket the nation that you're in. I want you to picket the streets. I want you to go and I want you to hand out tracts and I want you to go do these things in the city. And then I want you to get out, Right? I want you to go to the city, do all these things, but then I want you to kind of live on the outskirts of town, maybe, you know, in the suburbs. You should move out to the nice part of town where all the Christians live. I want want you to create these little Christian enclaves, right? That's not what God says to do. Listen to to what Tim Keller. Tim Keller is a pastor from New York City um, who has thought long and hard about this passage. And this is what he says. This This is what God is saying to his people. He's saying this, don't you dare take upon yourselves the values of that idolatrous city, but I want you to get into its guts. I want you to be committed to that city and I want you to work for its peace and prosperity in every way. That means spiritual peace and prosperity. I want you to bring people to know God. But it also means social peace and prosperity. I want you to help the races and the classes get along. That means economic prosperity. I want you to see that there's warm housing and safe streets and decent livings available there. I want you to seek the peace of the city. Listen, at Sacred City, we see ourselves as a city. We see ourselves as a city within the city. We are a sacred city, a city that's devoted to God. And what we want... Listen to me, we don't want to remove ourselves from the city. I grew up in Eldridge, I grew up in the suburbs, right? But our, my desire isn't to be a church in the suburbs. My desire, because of some of this text, is to be a church in the city. I want to be incubated in the quad cities, I want us to be inside the city, like Keller says, to be in the guts of the city. That in the city, we're to pray for our cities. We're to multiply and grow healthy families inside the city. And we're to seek the welfare of the city. We want to be in the city and influence the arts. To be influencing education. 
to be making a difference in commerce, in the medical field, in housing, in large and small businesses. We want to be influencing all these from the inside. We don't just want to be on the outside of the city and criticize everything that the city does. We seek to be a blessing to our cities. We want men and women who are like Joseph. They see themselves as missionaries sent into the city to make an impact. Can I ask you this? What does a missionary look like in your job? What if you are a missionary sent to exactly where you're sent into your workplace? Maybe you're a doctor. Maybe you're a hairdresser. Maybe you're a construction worker. Maybe you're a teacher. And what Keller says is, don't think it's just about the salvation of souls. Don't think it's just about sharing the gospel with individual people and seeing them saved. No, there's bigger. There's, there's other things involved as well. They're seeking the welfare of the city, changing the city in its guts, working for justice and renewal. That's what it means to renew the city. Having better businesses, having better welfare programs, working for the social reform, working to help the impoverished, working not just as a handout, giving the impoverished things, but helping them stand up on their own two feet. See, at Sacred City, we, because we, we believe it's a biblical worldview, we want to see We want to build a better city by being a better church. Did you hear that? We want to be a better church and therefore build a better city. Justin, what in the world? Why do we care about the city? Why do we care about the city? Because God cares about the city. That's why. Because guess what? If you don't like cities, you're not going to like heaven. It's a city. That's where all of creation is headed. All of creation is moving towards a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. And this earth is going to be a city, a glorified city. So we are passionate about seeing cities change and the gospel impact cities. We want to seek the welfare of the city and not just our own personal welfare. But unfortunately, this is, it's not the predominant way. Americans and and churches have sought to engage culture and influence the city. Many churches have abandoned cities as they seek a more comfortable life out in the suburbs. And listen, and I'm not, listen to me, Jesus loves the burbs too, okay? I'm not saying Jesus doesn't love the suburbs. I'm not saying if you live out in the suburbs, it's a sin and it's wrong. Absolutely not. Do I think you, we should live in the city? Absolutely Absolutely. There's more image of God per capita in the city than there is out in the country. What does that mean? People. People are made in the image of God. And in the city, that's centralized. And there's more people to impact. There's more things to do. There's more ways to help. Do I think we should move into the city? Absolutely. I think we should think of ourselves as missionaries. And listen to me. We should pray every time we seek to move. Every time we seek to find a new house. We should pray and ask God. Is this where you're leading our family to be missionaries in your city? 
Is this the neighborhood you've called us? Is this the area that you want us to work for the renewal of all things? What should we do in our neighborhood? How can we show our neighborhood the gospel? How can we declare it and display to our neighbors the gospel of Jesus Christ? That God, one day, He's taking... Old things and making them new. He's taking broken things and he's fixing them. And one day he's going to take this whole broken world and he's going to renew the whole thing for his glory. And today, by living like a missionary in my neighborhood, I'm going to display a little bit of God's renewal that's going to take place in the future. That's how I want us to live. That's the worldview we need to have. Listen, I want our church, I want our people If we want to change the city, if we want to influence culture, we've got to jump in upstream. We've got to be the influencers. We've got to be in the positions where we can make that happen. You don't influence culture downstream by just criticizing it and making bad versions of it. That's what Chris... I'm I'm sorry. I apologize for this. I really don't. Listen, but I have to say that, I guess. If you go into the Christian bookstore, I despise... The Christian bookstore. If you walk in it, it should just be called the cheesy bookstore. Bad art, bad clothing, bad music. It's, if you just talent wise and quality wise and, and on the level of other things in our society, it's bad. It's bad. But we grab that stuff as Christian consumers. They market it to us. We grab it and we put it on our walls. Right? And it's bad. You know if you heard that song before you were Christian, you would laugh at it. Right? It's not not high quality. But we're marketed this stuff. We see the separation in our culture between the sacred and the secular. And we think once we become Christian, we have to embrace all of these Christian things that are fed to us. To start wearing Jesus t-shirts and having Jesus bumper stickers and wearing Jesus hats. And you know you've done it. You know when you first came to Jesus, you did it. Right? And you're hoping like, this, this is, this is going to be a witness. Somebody's going to ask me about my t-shirt. I'm going to tell them that Jesus Christ said, you know, it's going to be my witness, Right? No, it's not. So listen. We have a different worldview. That's what makes us different. We see the sacredness in all things. Good music is good music because God says it's good And what do I mean by that? Those notes go together and that how everything was on time or whatever, in rhythm and in harmony, our ears like that because God created that perfect note and that perfect sound and those things to go together. What makes it good is not that it says, Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's not what makes it good. Lyrics do matter. Lyrics are good. It's great to listen to hymns and Christian music. That's great. But what makes it good is it has an intrinsic goodness to it that points us to God. Rhythm, beauty, these things point us back to God. We have that Christian worldview. So we can embrace things in our, some things in our culture that point us to that. 
I, I'm not going to spend any more time on that. Hopefully, hopefully we got it. So let's go back to Genesis. <clears throat> now, what's going to ha- what's going on? So eat the Egyptians here. They give everything, right? They're broke. They bring it all into, into Pharaoh. They bring it all into Joseph. What's happening to the Israelites? What's happening to God's people that have been incubated here? Look at verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Do you see this? Whoa, 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 whoa. Pharaoh's people are losing possessions and losing everything, and God's people are gaining possessions and are increasing. What's happening here? Now, I hope this should really point to what we just read in Jeremiah. They are being fruitful and multiplying. They are increasing. They are doing inside the city what God wants them to do. What we're called to do. Be fruitful. Multiply. Live lives focused on God. Do these things. Do your job well. They're doing this. Now, I want us to be really careful here. Okay? Because, okay, listen. The worst heresies, what's heresy? Any false teaching. The worst heresies have a shred of truth in them. All the bad heresies start out with something that's true or really close to being true. And what, what that does, what, what, what we, when we react against a heresy, sometimes we can fall off on the other side of the horse, right? We can push so far away from one thing that's taught wrong that we fall off on the other side of the horse and we err. And that can happen right here. See, God has commanded and promised the Israelites since the early chapters in Genesis that they should be fruitful and multiply. But we can't look at this and go, oh, this confirms some kind of prosperity theology that says God wants everyone to be rich. God does not want everyone to be rich in this world. Now, everyone in Christ is rich in faith, is rich in him. We've been given all the treasures of Christ. We are very rich in him spiritually. But God does not want every Christian to be rich. What this text is saying, and listen, can I tell you, there's a lot of people in our culture today that that are preaching that. I would like to name names, but wisdom will restrain me from that. There's a lot of men, you turn the TV on and you go to the books, Christian bookstore and their face and their brilliant smiles all over the front of the book. And they're preaching a prosperity gospel that says, if you do this, God will do that. If you come to Christ, you'll be rich in this world. It's a false gospel. But what this text is saying is simply this. These people are multiplying, they're being blessed, they're getting possessions, he's fulfilling his word to them, while the rest of the nation goes deeper and deeper and deeper into debt. But we, first off, we've got to remember, this is only the first 17 years. Pretty soon a new pharaoh is going to rise up, and this new pharaoh is going to start enslaving them, and things are going to go bad for them, right? So prosperity gospel kind of works when things are going well, but it doesn't work overall, in all cultures, in all times. Soon enough, they're going to feel the weight of oppression. 
So what's the point here? What's Moses trying to get across? For us, as we're reading this text, it's a difficult one. If you're reading this in your devotions, you're going to scan this and go, uh, okay, I got nothing. What's the point here? Listen, this is, as far as I can tell, reading the commentary, this is, what, this, is my, this is what I think the point is. God's people are kept by him. No matter where they are. Right now in communist countries, in Egypt this week, hundreds of churches were burned to the ground. But God's people are kept. God's church is not in danger of extinction. Israel is proof of that. They've been drugged into a pagan nation. They've been tried to, the, the worst rulers in human history have tried to annihilate them. And they've been unsuccessful. God's people are kept. Listen, this church, not just this church, God's universal church, the church is not in danger of extinction. Over 80% of the churches in the world are declining or stagnated right now. They're not in danger. God will keep his people. God will keep his church. Now, what I want us to do as I close, I want us to pull back. I want us to pull back 30,000 foot and I want us to look at this text. I want to see two really distinct things. I think this text is actually very pertinent for us today. It's important. It speaks to where we are. See, there's this popular belief that's impacted our city, it's impacted culture. I was scrolling through the other day. Um, I was just scrolling through Twitter. And this popular leader that's here in our city, um, he tweeted that his childhood friend had just passed away. And he said, I just hope, this is what he said, his friend passed away and he said this, I just hope at the end of my life, I have done enough good in this world to have earned a spot in the next. I just hope that at the end of my life, when I close my eyes, that I've done enough good in this world to earn a spot in the next. I think we see that value system here in this chapter. And I think we see two very distinct ways people get saved in this chapter. The sad thing is that I know this man and he would call himself a Christian. But his view of Christianity is consistent with our worlds and most people in our city and many people in this room. But it's not true Christianity. See, most people view Christianity like the Egyptians in this story. See, the Egyptians get saved, don't they? The Egyptians get saved just through the benevolence of Joseph. But guess what? It costs them everything. In a sense, they were paying very deeply for their salvation. They had to earn it. 
It cost them their bank accounts. It cost them their livestock. It cost them their lives. They had to give up everything to earn it. Now, my friend, as he was tweeting, he was saying something. I want you to hear this to me. I want you to hear this this morning, Sacred City Church. He was saying that the prominent way people view heaven and earning heaven, I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. I hope I've been good enough, moral enough on this planet that it will earn me a right into heaven. I want to work on that just for a second. Can I ask you, how much good, be- good behavior does your salvation cost? How much good behavior? What did my friend mean by that? Hope I've done enough good. What, what is, is there a line? Today I did two good things and only one bad thing. So now I'm, I'm above the line. How good is good enough? When can I be confident that I'm good enough to make it into heaven if I die? See, listen, I, I want us to see this very clearly. That way of thinking, it is human. It is natural. Many different religions propagate that same way of thinking. Become a good person. If you're more moral than somebody, I don't know who that is, but somebody, you become now a good person who now merits heaven and merits salvation and merits eternal life. But that is not Christianity. We call it moralism. And I want, I want, the reason I want to spend a little bit of time in closing today on this is because so many people, when they hear Christianity, they think I'm saying moralism. When I'm saying come to Christ, what they think I'm saying is become a good person. Stop doing bad things. Become a good person. And Jesus will love you and God will accept you and you will earn eternal life. And that is absolutely not what I'm saying. What you, what, if you think that's what I'm saying, that's moralism. That is not Christianity. That's very akin to what happens with the Egyptians in this story. They have to give everything to earn their eternal life. They have to give everything, not their eternal, to save themselves. They have to give everything. It costs them everything. Moralism says, if you pay enough or are good enough, God will accept you. Moralism says, you can do it. You just need to be better. How many of came to church and that's the message you heard. You can do it. Just be better. You can do it. Just read more. You can do it. Just sin less. You can do it. Just join this class. You can do it. Just blah, 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 blah. That's moralism. And it's been my experience that even Christians who claim they've been saved by grace still function in this type of framework most of the time. They would vocalize that they've been saved by grace, but they live like God accepts them based on their morality. They live like God accepts them based on their devotion. They live like God accepts them based on their Christian service. But what we see here in this text, what do God's people do to get saved? Nothing. 
absolutely nothing. They really don't. The Egyptians cast in, cash in all their stock, sell their livestock, and eventually sell themselves off as slaves in order to purchase their salvation. But the Israelites prosper. They multiply. Why? See, this is where we really get to see the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel should shine really bright against paganism, but it should also shine bright against secularism. It should also shine bright against moralism. This is what makes Christianity so neat, unique among the religions of the world. See, Christians say, listen, this is what Christians say. Salvation is unbuyable. Unbuyable. It's too expensive for any of us to purchase on our own. And we're utterly bankrupt to do anything about it. The moral performance that is required to earn a spot is this. Do you want to hear what the Bible says is good enough? Where is the line? The moral performance that's required is perfection. Moral perfection. That's it. You want in? That's the moral aptitude test. If you want to stand before God and like my friends say, I hope I did enough. I hope I was good enough. I hope I was moral enough. Just hear me. This is the equivalency test. This is the entrance exam. Are you morally perfect? No? Then hell. Then damnation. Then separation from God. That's the entrance exam. That's the aptitude test. That's the basic skills test to get into heaven. All you got to do is score perfect. But listen to the good news. This is the gospel. God, being rich in mercy, sent his own son to do what we cannot do. Why does Israel get to prosper here? Why do they get saved? Because God, being so rich in mercy, sent a little missionary named Joseph 22 years before to suffer in their place. Joseph suffered for them and then God exalted him to a position to save them. They are benefiting solely from Joseph's suffering and exaltation. Joseph's obedience is saving them. They're being saved. They're being blessed. They're prospering because of the obedience of another. Do you see that? They've done nothing. They haven't repented. It's not like they're down in Canaan going, you know what? We've been really bad. We really should turn from our sin and go up in Egypt and they're starving. God has used all these different things to get them where they need to be. And now they're just there. And because of Joseph being exalted, they're getting blessed. This is a picture of the gospel. We're meant to see the gospel in this story that God, he nearly bankrupts heaven in order to send Jesus to suffer in our place. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Jesus, like Joseph, was sent to save us. But Jesus didn't just suffer. He was murdered. He was crucified to pay our debts. And listen to me. 
That's why moralism is so offensive to God. Moralism is rejecting God's greatest gift to mankind. The gift of the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us by faith. The perfection of Jesus that gets counted on my behalf through faith. Moralism, listen. My friend, when he's saying, I hope I've done enough good. He doesn't realize how offensive that is to God. Moralism is saying to God, you owe me salvation. You owe me blessing. You owe me prosperity because I've performed. I've been good. But what you're really saying is this. I don't need Jesus. I don't need him to perform on my behalf. I'm a good person. I know I'm better than my neighbor. I know I'm better than my spouse. Why does God spit that out of his mouth? Why does God reject that? Why does God act with such animus towards that? Because it's rejecting the gift of his son. I don't need Jesus. I don't need his performance credited me by faith. I want to stand on my own. And that's offensive to God. And listen, it's not just offensive to God. It will become a never-ending, exhausting treadmill for you. Are you good enough right now? Were you a good enough spouse this week? Did you read your Bible enough? Did you pray enough? Did you serve enough? Were you on mission enough? Were you in community enough? Did you believe the gospel enough? That's a never-ending, exhausting treadmill. Let me put it in a nutshell. Gospel says this. Believer and unbeliever alike in this room. The gospel says this. Hear it. You are so bad. We are. We are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we are so loved that Jesus willingly died for us. He did it willingly. And all Christian obedience flows out of that truth. And it doesn't start here. It's in the heart. Many people, my son can repeat to me, Jesus loves me. Jesus died for my sins. Um, He can repeat to me catechism questions about what sin is and why he needs salvation. He can do all those things, but his heart has not been melted yet. And there's people in this room today. that You think you know the gospel. But it's not up here. The heart, the heart includes the mind, but the heart is more than the mind. The heart isn't just emotion. The heart is the core of the human being. And when the heart believes the gospel, it's like Jonathan Edwards said, it's like the difference between reading in the dictionary what honey is and then tasting it on your tongue. You can read that it's sweet and that it's viscous and that it's golden and you can read all these things and you can know it. But when that honey tastes, when you get that honey on your tongue, there's a different level of knowing. The same with the gospel. 
Do you know it here? Does it shape you? How, how, how do I know? How do, do you see yourself as a missionary in your job? Do you think God owes you something? Do you look down on those who you think you're more moral than? You think you're a better Christian? Do you look down on those people? If you do, you're missing the gospel. You you might have it up here, but you don't have it here. It's not shaping the core of who you are. This is what it means to embrace the gospel. This is what it means to be a gospel-centered missional church. I pray that you would know it. That that your heart would be melted by it. There's nothing else to learn. There's nothing else to move on. There's nowhere else to go to higher doctrines. We need to go deeper and deeper and deeper into knowing this. Father, I pray this morning that your spirit would do a work that no human can do. No words of man can convey. That your spirit would bring this uh, to pass in our life, that our hearts would be melted by your gospel. That all the other justifications for our life, all the other ways that we seek to be made right before you through our morality and through, through our bringing our gifts to you and thinking that now God will accept me and now I'll be good enough and all those things, Father, we would see them as substitute saviors. We would see them as ways of rejecting Jesus. Many of us try to avoid Jesus by just saying, I don't need the church and I don't need Jesus and I don't need religion. And so we, we, we miss Jesus because of irreligion. But then there's many of us in this room who we miss Jesus because of religion. We miss Jesus because we live our lives like we don't need him. Because our moral performance and our Bible reading and our theology and all this stuff and our goodness and our service, all these things make us a good person. So now we don't need Jesus. I pray that your your light, divine and supernatural light would allow us to see we are bankrupt without Jesus. We can offer you nothing. We are so bad. You had to send Jesus. He's the only morally perfect one among us. But Father, that doesn't cause us to despair because at the same time we see Jesus didn't just do it because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He did it willingly because he loved us. May we feel the love of God this morning. May our hearts be melted by the love of our Savior, the love of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came as a man of sorrows to take our pain, to live our life, to die our death, to give us his moral aptitude, his right standing before, the God, before God. And that can be ours this morning by faith. I pray that many would turn from their sin And they would turn to you in repentance and faith. And as we take this supper, we would stand before you as morally bankrupt sinners in need of grace. But Father, we would celebrate that that need has been met in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We are like the Israelites who get blessing for doing nothing.
We are in a pagan nation, but you have sent us here. You have sent your son. You have redeemed us. You have purchased us. You have bought us and you are blessing us. And now send us out of this room to be a blessing to the nation and the city that you have sent us to. We are your missionaries. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.